Welcome to the Military Child Education Coalition podcast, the show that highlights a wide range of challenges and triumphs that our military-connected kids experience. My name is Nikki Harrison, and I'll be your host today. We would like to say thank you for the support of BAE Systems for this episode. And I'm so excited that I have Ross Sabo joining me today, and I'd love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Thanks. It's really great to be here. My name is Ross Zabo. I'll do two introductions. My professional introduction is I am the wellness director and a founding faculty member at Geffen Academy at UCLA. It's a school for students in grades 6 through 12. I created a program where students learn about mental health once a week, every week, as part of their education, every week from grade 6 through grade 12. And then in the summer, we host the Mental Health Teacher Training Institute where we teach other schools how to do what we're doing, how to implement mental health education and, and using your personal story as an educator. How did I get this fancy job? That would be the personal <laughs> introduction. I always joke that you don't get to be a mental health advocate because you had a great life. And then you're like, oh, I should tell people how great life is. You get there because you've been through stuff. And so I went through a lot of trauma when I was 11 and 12. And then I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 16. When I was 17 and a senior in high school, I was hospitalized for attempting to take my own life. And at the time, I wasn't on anyone's radar. I had the perfect college resume and an internal life filled with depression that I was hiding and a lot of substance use. Hospitalized when I was 17, graduated high school, went to college for two months, had a massive relapse, came home, and then was in and out of different hospitals and colleges for the next four years, really trying to figure out what was going on. Hit rock bottom actually at 22, not at 17. And that's when I started working on my mental health more. I always say that I'm still working on my mental health. It's not, oh, I went through this as a kid and now I'm great. There's still a lot of things to work on. And sometimes I think the fallout for mental health disorders, the disassociation, the self-hatred, a lot of those other things takes even longer to deal with than the actual disorders. And that personal experience led me to a life of advocacy. I started speaking and sharing my story when I was senior in high school, actually, wow. and then grew it from there, from speaking to writing books to writing curriculum to now having a school. What a story, really, both sides, professional and personal. And I think really courageous at such a young age to feel comfortable sharing your story with others. I think that was, that's actually pretty amazing. And some self-awareness there that you had I'm going to agree with you that I think it is an everyday part of your life when you are going through anything mental health related. You're working on it and you're working on yourself. Absolutely. So I'd love for you to tell us your thoughts on today's mental health crisis. There has been so much talk, of course, during the pandemic, after the pandemic about mental health. What do you think about it? I have many thoughts about the mental health crisis. The first thought really is a lot of times we focus on youth, the youth mental health crisis and the anxiety yeah. and depression and suicide. But the mental health crisis in adults is far worse than the youth mental health crisis. The suicide rates are higher. The loneliness is higher. The disorders are higher. And the means to harm yourself is higher. So the highest suicide rate in this country is not young people. It's, it's men over the age of 45. And anytime we talk about the mental health crisis, it's, it's natural and it's fine and it's okay to put the focus on youth. But the reality is if we approach this mental health crisis from a place of let's just young people and they need to figure it out and we don't include adults and ourselves and in what we're doing, it's not going to work. 
that's the first part. The second part of it is the mental health crisis in general, no matter what population you're talking about, is a giant puzzle. To cover all of it is hard. There's not enough mental health professionals. There's not enough resources. The gaps in socioeconomic status make it difficult. The amounts of trauma people are experiencing makes it difficult. The identity markers and how that affects mental health makes it difficult. So what I try to do is just stay focused on one piece, which is mental health education. And that's just one missing piece. There are many hardworking people out there trying to find all of the other pieces and work on connecting it and work on doing it. I just focus on the mental health education piece because it's critical. And when I say mental health education, I don't just mean schools. I mean, it can happen in workplaces. It can happen in the home. It can happen everywhere. It's not just uh, isolated to one place. And I like that you're highlighting that adults are also struggling with mental health. It's not just our kids. And I think about those, some of our listeners who are parents and they're raising kids and kids are watching everything you do, right? They are listening, they are learning. And so those behaviors that you're exhibiting when you maybe are struggling with your mental health as well, your kids are, they're seeing that. So I always think about how that plays into your home when you're at home with your kids for those that are parents. And we talk about military connected families and it's a highly mobile population. There's a lot of additional stressors that are different than what some of our civilian counterparts are experiencing in their life. And how does a military connected life impact these issues? And do you think it has a positive effect? Or maybe do you even think it has a negative effect? Let's talk about both. We can talk about both sides. I think the, and I won't call it negative because that's harsh. Yeah, that is harsh. I think there's aspects of military life that can contribute to difficult pieces of development. So if you're a kid and you move a bunch of times and you don't see your parents as much and you live with the anxiety when they're in arena or when they're serving that they might not come home and you, in that process are, of moving and worrying and everything else, you can develop some really difficult coping mechanisms because you're constantly on edge and trying to make new people, make new friends, do all of those things that yeah. are so hard for development. With that said, there's obviously opportunity in that. There are so many people who are military children who come out of it with more resilience, with more people skills, with more ability to connect, with more sense of purpose, all of those things. And so I think depending on who the person is and what they're going through, you just got to try and meet people where they are. You can't try and move them to where they're not. And one of the things that I think is so exciting about MCEC is the students who are in this program to welcome kids and bring them in and make sure that they are adjusting okay or at least have someone to eat lunch with or things like that. Those small things in adolescence are what make a, a big difference. A lot of times I think we focus on schools and we think about, oh, what subject are they learning? And How's that going to advance them in their future job prospects and life after it? But all of us can remember having that moment in school where we're like, do we fit in? Does anybody like me? Yep. Is anyone my friend? And then those moments where trust is broken, where we are outcasts, where we are going through those things hurt so much and they shape a lot of our future. And so 
there are always going to be difficult things and positive things to look at in military life. There's no guarantee of what somebody comes out of it as, but focusing on both sides can help balance that conversation. For sure, focusing on both sides. And it's funny that you said, I always talk about with my boys who I was a military child and my kids, of course, are military kids. So I'm raising military kids. And I always talk about they're just being one person. Sometimes you just have that one person that sees you, that becomes that trusted person that you can talk to, that can lift you up, that can support you. It just takes one how really pivotal that one individual can be in your life and that you can look back many years later and remember. And I always tell them, we're moving around a lot. And I always ask them, how do you want to be remembered? Do you want to, you can be really impactful in one child's life, especially that kid that maybe you saw every day they were sitting at lunch by themselves at a table and you sit with them. And that one experience can impact that one student's life and change their whole view of the world. I think that's so amazing. And you were talking about S2S and our student-to-student program and they're there to support all new students. And so those are some really great programs. So I know we're talking about mental health. And of course, it's a crisis in our youth and our adults. And I think it's been very taboo, or at least it has been previously. So how do we normalize talking about mental health in our everyday conversations at school and at home? There are a couple ways to do it. One is to use your personal story in a way that helps you make points or connect to other people. There are adults and educators using personal stories all over this country, but no one ever really gives them guidelines. Nobody ever really says, hey, here's what you can do and here's what you might want to stay away from. And so in the schools that I go to, I, I agree with you that having one caring adult, the data on that makes a huge difference. But how that relationship and how those things are managed can also make a big difference because there are people who are doing their best and trying to connect, but can also cause harm in in that process. Yeah. So one thing that I always say is if you want to share about your mental health with anyone, it's really important to make sure you're choosing a story that you're not processing with someone else. Once you start processing with someone else, the dynamic changes. And there are many educators in the world and the country who share like they're going through a divorce or like they didn't want a second kid, but their spouse made them have it or all <laughs> kinds of like other stuff. And when the kids are put in a place where now they have to process it with them, it just changes the dynamic in a really unhealthy way. So anytime you share, you want to make sure you're sharing something you've processed. If in the mid depths or the start of you trying to share something, you start becoming emotional, that's not the story. Right. It's not the one to share. And then the next thing you want to do is really make sure that what you're sharing has a point. So throughout all my talks, I'll talk about having the external life that everybody saw that was perfect, the internal life that was filled with depression and self-hatred and how that led to me attempting to take my own life. But I'll always transition back to the audience and say, how many people do you know who do that? And what can we do about it? And what can we do to change it? And so I think it's just finding stories that relate and then transitioning it back to a learning objective instead of making it about you. Whenever we make things about you, it's tough to connect. And I think one of the hardest things for adults a lot of times too is, 
everybody needs validation. We don't go into education because we don't need validation. But the validation should come in what kids are learning. It should come from what your coworkers or other people are seeing. It shouldn't come from them personally validating you as a human. So that's one way to really normalize these conversations. Another way is to build language for mental health, which we could talk about more specifically as a program for a school. But the biggest form of education is modeling. It's never going to be books. And what we model and what we show is what really sticks. Even in some really difficult times or kids going through phases where they might be lashing out or things like that, what we show them is what is going to really resonate with them. And sharing our personal stories is, is just one tool that we can use. I think that's good. I like that you mentioned role modeling because we talk a lot about exhibiting that behavior that we'd like to see in others around us, especially our kids. But it made me also think when you were saying adults sharing stories, but they're still processing. And if you get really emotional, that's probably a little flag that throw up the little flag like this maybe isn't the best story or time. But I always think about how do you know when it's okay to share or if it's okay? Because a lot of us go through a lot of things and we don't talk about them. We, we hide them. There's some shame in how we feel about them. And how, how do you start to share your story to, with someone? Choosing a story is always that, that first step. I think that there's natural inroads in a lot of the schools for military children because a lot of the teachers and other people are were also military children like you shared and you're a military child your kids are military children so one of the easiest starting points is to think about what the students or what you see the students dealing with and how you can relate to it not beat them up for not being able to cope the way you did there's a lot of times where adults are projecting their unprocessed trauma on kids being like oh, i had to do this, so you should do it. You didn't actually do it. You're still mad. You're still mad about it. So if you're still mad about it, did you actually do it? And so what I mean by that is if you notice like kids are having trouble with adjustment in the beginning of the year, you can share like, hey, yeah, I also went to a military school and I had such a hard time that this is what I went through and this is what I've learned from it. Not necessarily trying to one-up them and be like, you kids don't know. It's more of a connection point. So when you talk about like, how do I start this process? I think one of the best places or one of the things to do is look at what's going on and see how you connect. A lot of schools across the country right now have suicides or have other things happening at them. If an adult in that situation doesn't connect or doesn't reach out and say, I know that this is really hard. I have some experience with this when I went blah, 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 fill in the gaps then the kids are going to feel even more disconnected and they're going to be like, oh, no one cares. All, all this is happening and no one cares. So there are natural programs of connection. But I think if you're really stuck on where do I start, look at the biggest issue and see where you fit in. But again, don't beat them up for it, for how you had to deal with it. Show them that you get it. Right. It, and I was laughing when you were saying the unprocessed trauma that we're putting on our kids because all I could think of is guilty. I I have said to my boys before, you don't know what I had to go through. I there were they didn't have all these resources and all these things for the for kids that they have now. I didn't have what you have, and you're absolutely right. That's like that unprocessed trauma 
that I have of remembering what it was like to go to 13 different schools before I graduated high school and having really difficult time making friends and there not being all these amazing specialized programs to help build me up. And I'm like harboring that in my mid 40s. So you're not alone. I know. So I'm not. But I think that I think it's good to to talk about that and make us aware of that. Whether you're a parent, whether you're an educator, whether you're a professional, just as adults in general, that's good because you just made me think about that. Talk with us a little bit about brain development in adolescents and young adults and maybe what our parents and educators should be doing about it. The second largest period of brain growth in a person's life is between 12 and 25. The largest period of brain growth is zero to two, which is really cool because no one ever remembers that. <laughs> and it's not that it doesn't matter. Obviously, it does. All the studies show that language development, attachment style, like all those things are important. I'm not saying they're not. But what humans tend to remember the most is that 12 to 25 period. I often joke with adults that a lot of times being an adult is either just undoing adolescence or reliving adolescence, depending on your level of awareness, because there are a lot of people who they are still in high school as an adult in an adult body. And the brain development piece is important for uh, a couple of very key reasons. One, as the brain is maturing between 12 and 25, a lot of people are having their first experiences with loss, change, and rejection. And when they're going through those experiences with loss, change, and rejection is when they develop their coping mechanisms, their internal voice, develop their identity, develop a lot of other things. And so as they're going through that, if we're not paying attention to it, then what comes out of it can be really challenging. And they're going to have to try and undo it the rest of their lives. The second piece of it for parents is during this large period of brain growth, the brain is being pumped with dopamine at higher rates than it ever will before. And what kids do with that dopamine makes a huge difference. So if they channel dopamine into substances, into drugs, into alcohol, then it's going to feel really good. They're going to take risks. They're going to shut down. They're going to do all kinds of other things. But if you're able to get that dopamine channeled into sports, athletics, rock climbing, skateboarding, things that are higher risk but don't have the addictive principles of drugs and alcohol, it makes a huge difference. Same thing if you're able to channel that dopamine into the arts or music or other aspects of that, like it just makes a big difference. So you don't have to freak out as a parent and be like, oh man, 12 to 25 sets them up for the rest of their lives. Can't mess this up because the reality is you might have kids who don't listen to you. You might have kids who don't believe you. The beauty of the 12 to 25 year old brain is that they know more than you anyway. And they already know more than you and more than you'll ever know. So you're really just trying to guide and help and shape things. But your kid's personality is set from the time they're born. You can see that quickly where they're like, this is who they are. So don't beat yourselves up too much, but do let them know how the brain works. In this digital age, most of us are just living in the limbic system of our brain, which is just the fight or flight mechanism. We're not activating our cortexes. We're not thinking. Mm -hmm. And then when we're in the limbic system and we're just reacting, a lot of the thoughts we have aren't ours. Yeah. When we look at things like this political divide, all this other stuff, people are just really impulsive now because it's a digital age. And that's not going away. And when we have AI and VR 
It's just going to get amplified. Part of the reason you've seen such a massive rise of anxiety and depression and suicide and loneliness is because of technology. It's not any other factor. And so it is good to pay attention and have people take breaks from their phones, do other things, get outside. But this time period does shape a lot of people for the for significant parts of their lives. I would agree I, about the technology, but I also I have to come to the reality that it isn't going away. So how do we effectively utilize the technology that's been given to us and help guide our kids, our students to do the same too? I think that's what we're having to do. But I know you talked about, you know, channeling them into other activities that really help them. And so that kind of leads me to those coping mechanisms and how do you change ineffective coping mechanisms and turn them into effective ones, like you said, the the skateboarding, whatever it is. And I just think, how do you do that? First of all, if I knew the answer for that, then <laughs> I wouldn't be on this podcast. I'd be, be in like sold out stadiums, just changing everyone's coping mechanisms. There are steps and, and human behavior change is really difficult. And that is true of anything, true of physical health, true of mental health, true of anything. So there, the steps, if you do want to change a coping mechanism, is the first step is somebody has to want to do it. You can't make someone do something they don't want to do. This piece, though, with the coping mechanisms is really frustrating because all of us have had friends or family members that we've lost because they couldn't find the way to change the coping mechanism. And we lost them to drugs or alcohol. We lost them to suicide. We lost them to something because even if you stand and scream until you're blue in the face or hug them endlessly, for some reason, there are humans who just don't, they don't get to that place. If you have and are working with someone who does want to change, the next step is really being able to identify when you are about to use that coping mechanism. It's self-awareness. So I binge drank to the point of passing out really for every emotional trigger I had from 16 to 22. Wow. And when I wanted to stop binge drinking, I couldn't just say I want to stop drinking. I had to say, all right, this is an emotional trigger. This is when I binge drink and then replace that with a different coping mechanism. And that takes time. It takes the awareness to say, oh, here's that urge before I'm going to do something. Yep. And then you have to actually find other coping mechanisms that you want to do. So if I stop drinking, what was it going to be? Because drinking feels good. It's a lot easier to do than talk or exercise or do other stuff, I was able to find interests that I liked, like running or exercising or doing things like that. But then you have to practice it. The hardest thing about changing coping mechanisms is you develop neural pathways for any behavior you have in your life. And the longer you use that behavior, the deeper the neural pathways get. And the deeper they get, it's so much harder to change them. People love to say it takes 30 days to change a habit, which is such a cool story. These aren't habits. Coping mechanisms are influenced by your biology, by your environment, by your experiences, and you don't just change them overnight. So once you start practicing the effective coping mechanisms, you really are building the actual pathways for your brain. And then the fourth step is, you know, you know you're practicing it so much that it becomes more automatic. The fifth step is having an environment that allows you to grow and change because nobody changes overnight. What's very common in trying to change a coping mechanism is you try to change for a week or two. 
it doesn't work. You go back to the existing neural pathways, which are powerful and it feels good. And so you give up. That's why having a supportive environment and letting you know that any change is really helpful. I hated myself really for six years. And when I was coming out of it, I had to realize that if I had an hour of a day where I didn't hate myself, it was actually a big change from the 24 seven self-hatred. And then I had to build on that. How do I get to another hour? But no one can do that alone. No one. You need at least someone you love, someone you care about who can be there to hold space for you, to remind you, to celebrate with you, to take those actions. It's, it's a hard thing. So the first step, again, is you have to want to. The second step is self-awareness, being able to identify it. The third step is replacing the ineffective coping mechanism. Fourth step is practicing it. And then the fifth step is really having that environment that helps you grow. I was thinking when you were talking about this, you know, it sounds like you found some passions or some hobbies, some interests that you had that you could convert into a coping mechanism for yourself. I was just thinking about for our parents that have kids, you can't force them to do things, or some might say you can, depending on the parenting style or technique. But how do you get them to figure out their coping mechanism? Like, do you, oh, you you like music. Music's your thing. Maybe when you're having a difficult day, pop in those earbuds and jam out to whatever it is you're listening to. That advice you just gave is really good. <laughs> I think that sometimes what's even harder for parents is when they don't have any effective coping mechanisms. And... They're stuck on their gaming system for 14 hours a day, or they're on their phone, or they're doing something that doesn't seem to be benefiting them. In the example you gave, that's perfect. I don't have anything to add to that. <laughs> but in the other example where they may not have other coping mechanisms, that's where really trying to be active in the family is important so that you, you have family things you do. Whether it's game night, whether it's going for walks, whether it's going to the movies, whether it's eating as a family, whatever it is, having that as a way to just start that conversation and having it be consistent is big. Hard in military families where you may not be home enough. So when you are home, this is what we do as a family. This, even if they push back. The, t the tough thing about kids is when you're trying to set up boundaries and trying to develop strong things, if they push back once and win, that's gone. That whole thing that you'd spent all this time doing is gone because you've broken that one moment. But the other piece of it is understanding that some of their coping mechanisms are a release and some of them are a reinforcement. If you think about any coping mechanism, that line between release and reinforcement is different for every person. So you could take a kid who does love to game. There is some gaming that's actually really healthy for them. They talk to their friends, they communicate, they play for an hour or two, and they feel good. It's just when that gaming reaches that point of reinforcing their isolation, their loneliness, their self-hatred, where it can be difficult. Same thing for music. Some people listen to music. It's angry music. They see that someone resonates with their anger and they feel good. Other people listen to angry music and it just reinforces their anger to the point where they go and fight people. So I don't necessarily have the answers on what every parent can do, but pay attention to the language and what it's doing. Is it releasing emotions? Is it reinforcing emotions? And then if your kid is in a situation where they don't actually have a coping mechanism that helps them, trying to work with them and, and be patient as they find one. It can be a struggle for sure. 
So mental health education, what does it look like in schools? And do you think it's being implemented across the board? Should it be implemented across the board? And if not, how do you recommend for them to start? So mental health education is being talked about. (laughs) It's being talked about in a lot of places. And the reality is it is just evolving now. It's just starting. In the past, this is a really fascinating history, social emotional learning was huge. And social emotional learning was huge because it was emotional intelligence. It was identifying emotions. It was talking about emotions. It was regulating emotions. And if you think about it, even 10 years ago, people were in the social emotional learning movement saying, this isn't mental health because schools were deathly afraid of mental health education. And now with the parents' rights movement and other things happening, people are saying we need mental health education, which is a really huge shift. There are states passing laws for mental health education, but they're not getting enforced. And there's no real center for what would you do if you wanted to implement mental health education. What we're trying to do at UCLA with our Mental Health Education Institute is be that resource. One, be a community for people to join so that they can have conversations about what they're trying to do. And then also offer the resources that people can use. So at our Mental Health Education Institute, we go over a common language that all schools can use for mental health. But that has to start with staff and faculty, not with the kids. And the biggest and easiest model for it is physical health. Mental health in schools doesn't mean schools become therapy centers because they can't. Schools cannot be therapy centers, but you can take a public health approach that we've taken similar to physical health in the past and implement that. And if you follow the physical health model, one of the first things that is a part of physical health education is a language. Can you name all your body parts? Can you name what they do? Can you identify when something's wrong? So the first piece is really breaking mental health challenges into different categories or having different factors that influence your mental health. So everyday influences like stress and sleep and body image and self-compassion, those can be positive or negative depending on how they affect you, but that is a big factor. And then your environment, the home you grew up in, the school you go to, the way you're raised, your relationships, things like that's another factor. Significant events, experiences with loss, change, or rejection, like starting a relationship, ending a relationship, death, the parents' divorce, things like that, mental health disorders and developmental disabilities. We need these different categories because we have them for physical health. Everyone knows the difference between a sprained ankle and a broken leg, the difference between having a cold and having the flu, the difference between cancer and diabetes, because that's how it was taught. The next piece of it is we have to change how we frame mental health. Whenever you hear people say there's a mental health spectrum, they tend to say like on one side, people are sane. On the other side, people have schizophrenia. And that spectrum doesn't work. It's not similar to a physical health spectrum. And it's actually stigmatizing. There's two main issues with that spectrum too. One, I have bipolar disorder. I'm also sane at the same time. Yeah. So how am I in two places of the opposite spectrum? But the more dangerous thing is it promotes the idea that you need to wait till you have a problem to seek help. And we don't do that with physical health. You'll never get advice that you should wait until you get diabetes to eat healthily. You should wait till you get cancer to exercise. So we need to change the way we frame it. And if you think about physical health, we typically choose an issue and think about how we function with it. So if you tear your ACL, you need surgery, and then you can't walk, 
and then you need physical therapy and then you can walk better, but it still takes months until you can run and then you don't need the support anymore. And we have to look at mental health the same way. Take an issue with your mental health and what kind of support do you need with it and how long do you need that support? And what you're doing there, instead of saying mental health is like physical health, is you're getting actually specific about it. Beyond that, you can teach the difference between nervousness and anxiety disorders, between feeling depressed and having depression, between a body image issue and eating disorders, between a thought of death and a plan to take your own life, the differences between good stress and bad stress, the brain development piece, which is so critical, and the peer support piece. Because every single school in this country, every night has a kid convincing another kid to stay alive. Has a kid convincing another kid to just get through the night. Yep. Kids are on the front lines of mental health more than adults are. So there are public health approaches we can take to implementing mental health education in schools that follow that public health model that make a huge difference. Those are all so important. And all I thought about when you thought about a lot of things, but when you're talking about the physical parts is all the preventative care that we talk about for diabetes, for instance, we talk about all the preventative aspects to that you can do to stay healthy so that hopefully you don't have diabetes aside from any predispositions since mental health can be the same. What are those pre preventative aspects to it? Self-care, right? And how do we define self-care? What does that look like? It looks different for everyone. So you're working in the school and we would love to know some examples that you've seen that make a difference with your work? The things that stand out the most to me are when our graduates come back from college and they share with me that now they get why we had this class. One of the hardest things about putting mental health education in schools is everyone says we need it. It's not easy to do. You're basically trying to teach kids' skills that they can use that they may not know they need, and they're pushing back and they're not seeing the value in it. But all of our graduates, when they come back from college, share that this is the only class they really use. They're trying to navigate their roommate situations and dating, and they don't realize how important it is to have a language until they meet people who don't. And so they'll meet kids who don't have a framework for mental health, don't have a way to identify it, don't know what to do about it, and they're like, why don't you know this? And they're like, no one ever taught me. And then they're like, oh, we're this class. So that's one really meaningful moment where, and it's many, when we see our graduates who are like, oh, wow, like I had no idea. I think the second thing is you have successes all the way throughout the year. I teach a class, a 10th grade class. Our curriculum for 10th grade is healthy relationships. And it's a deep dive into how to create healthy relationships. So it is about your history and the chemicals and neurotransmitters and lust attraction and attachment theory and love languages and conflict resolution and communication styles, all those things. And what we see in that, at the end of the year, we ask kids to do a final project on who they want to be in a future relationship. A lot of these kids are already having ideas of what they're going to do in relationships and experiences. The conversations I have with teenagers aren't different than I have with adults. But it's giving them a framework to operate from and a, a vocabulary to use like when they're in a situation to say, oh, this person isn't expressing love the way I need or uh, we're not matching up in this way. So the final projects are always just stunning to me. I ask them to use four lessons from the year 
and kids just do all kinds of stuff. This one student shared that when she started the year, she thought her parents had a really healthy relationship. And then as the year went on, she realized that not only was it unhealthy, but that she was letting guys treat her the way that her dad treated her mom and listed all the steps she was going to take to try and change that. Or you have all these boys. There's very little relationship advice for men in general, but especially boys. And they go through this class and they'll share so much at the end of, I didn't even know that was a thing or that this was possible or that I do this to people. Yeah. And so that class specifically, I love because I think it just, again, gives them a vocabulary in a different way. I, I just love that. And I'm laughing because as a mom of boys, I absolutely agree. I think there's so many things that we could do to teach them. So I'm attempting to do that with my 17-year-old. It's evident how passionate you are about your work and many amazing things that you're doing, really. And I would love to know what you feel like is the most rewarding part of what you do. I think the most rewarding part is really just seeing that if you create a structure for people, how much they thrive in it. That if you just give people permission how talented they are. Whenever I, I, and I go to schools all the time and I always hear schools say like, we have the best people. And, and I want people to believe that, but I also want people to believe that every school has people doing their best. And we can't just say, oh, this school's the best or this school's the best. Like y'all, we're all just trying to do our best. And there's so much we don't know. And I just finished my uh, Mental Health Education Institute last week, and I was saying to someone, once you teach those guidelines, once you teach that common language, what people do with it blows me away. And that's a credit to them and them just being able to shine. And that's, a, that's the most rewarding piece is coming from the kid who did try to kill himself. And who had a teacher after it reach out and let me know that someone believed in me and someone cared about me to becoming that teacher and just holding that space and creating those systems. That's what makes a difference. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I think it is so important to have these conversations. And I feel like I need to go back to my kids' school district and talk more about mental health education. So I appreciate you just chatting with me and joining with me and sharing your story. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for this. I'd like to thank Ross Sabo for his time today, as this is an important conversation for us to have. Thanks for listening to the MSEC podcast the official podcast of the Military Child Education Coalition. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, and give today's show a five-star rating. And don't forget to leave us a comment on topics you'd like to hear more about. We'd like to give a special thanks again to BAE Systems for supporting this episode and Consentus Media for audio mixing. I'm Nikki Harrison, and until next time, in a world where you can be anything, be kind. Be kind.